The idea of the expressions of God throughout history being in multiple forms is something that is indeed a very Jewish thought. A father and of a son or of an angel of the Lord and of a Holy Spirit, a spirit of God. And I would challenge even the most religious of rabbis, even the most studied of Jewish leaders to object to that idea. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discussed. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today, we're actually going to talk about the top five Jewish objections to Jesus. And this podcast follows another episode where we talked about how to share the gospel with a Jewish person. So now we're talking about once you share the gospel, what are some of the objections you might receive and how to respond to those? So let's discuss. So Ezra, some people might wonder why do Jews even object to Jesus? They're also waiting for the Messiah. Why can't they just accept him? So we're going to get into some of those objections, and today we're going to focus on what we're deeming as our top five, because there's tons of objections, probably hundreds of objections that a Jewish person could give, but we're just going to focus on five. So let's start with the first one, which is one that's probably often heard if you're sharing the gospel with a Jewish person. They might say, well, a person is either Jewish or they're Christian, and I'm Jewish, And Jesus is for the Gentiles. So, you know, why are you talking to me about becoming a Christian? Yeah, it's a good question. And Carly, I just brewed a fresh cup of coffee. So I just, spoiler alert, our audience is going to hear slurping. Don't worry. It's not static in the line. It's actually the co-host enjoying a fresh cup of some delicious coffee. Anyway, I felt it would would be how I could best prepare to answer these questions. carefully crafted Jewish objections to the gospel or Jewish objections, we can say specifically to the person of Jesus. So before I answer the first question you asked me in terms of this idea of the Jews have their way and the Christians have their way, and you, you know, that's sort of the, the irreversible diode, Jewish or Christian. I think first, you know, the question is, how do you even get into this conversation in the first place? And the question is, Uh, In order to be talking about Jesus, you probably have to have established the idea, and we talk about this in the previous episode you mentioned, how to share the gospel or how to share Jesus with a Jewish person, the idea that we need a redeemer, right? We need a savior. And in order to believe you need a savior, well, what are you being saved from? Well, we're being saved from being separated from God. Well, why are we separated from God? Because we sinned. Adam and Eve sinned, and because we're all born into Adam and Eve, we we are born into sin, and we continue that behavior, which separates us from God. So that's kind of the precursor, Carly, to even getting to the point where you can talk about Jesus. And if you're wondering how to get there in a conversation with a Jewish friend, Jewish extended family member, listen to the previous episode. But let's say you get there, right? And you name the name of Jesus, and you start talking about your faith in Jesus. And like you said, very quickly, the person either smiles or grimaces, and they say, I know you're a Christian, but I'm Jewish. And that's just the answer, right? And I'm sorry to say, many people in the Christian world, when they hear that, actually kind of shrink back and go, oh, I'm sorry, as though I've offended you, or I almost offended you, and you're right. If you're Jewish, I'll stop right there. But what you're actually doing is reinforcing this idea that there's this wall of separation and that the Christians have their God and the Jews have their God and never the two shall meet. And part of what we're doing in this entire podcast 
series, Carly, but especially this episode is trying to dispel some of those myths and object to some of those objections because they're false endings, if you will. They're false endings to the conversation. It's a great smokescreen to say, I'm Jewish and what you're saying to me is Christian, but we want to try to push on that a little bit and see what's there. So Ezra, before you go on, what you just said, the Jews have their God and the Christians have their God. Isn't that an example of dual covenant theology, which is something we talked about actually a few episodes ago? It is. And if you're not familiar with that term, either Google it or better yet, listen to our podcast episode on the concept. Dual covenant theology, you're right, Carly, says that the Jews have their way to God. In essence, the Jews have their way to being in right standing with God, to be, to be more specific. And the Christians have their way. And it's super politically correct, right? Because everybody's right. All roads lead to God. Everybody wins in the end. God's going to work it out for the Jews. God's going to work it out for the Christians. The Christians have Jesus. The Jews have the covenants and the scriptures and mitzvot, we say in Hebrew, good works, and the rabbis to teach us what to do. And somehow in the goodness and mercy of God, it's all going to work out. But I want to challenge our Christian audience. Do you, do you see that in the scriptures? What I see is Salvation is found in no one else, Acts 4.12, because there's no other name than Jesus under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's not a Christian theological pillar. That's a Jewish man in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit proclaiming a gospel message from the Old Testament scriptures to a Jewish audience gathered to hear him speak in Jerusalem while manifesting signs and wonders done in the power of the Holy Spirit to confirm the message he's saying. That was a big mouthful. But what I'm saying there is from the first century Jewish believers onward, they're pushing against and strenuously resisting this idea that Jesus is now inaugurating some parallel religious system for a separate group of people that's apart from and never to intersect with Israel and the Jewish people. It's just, it's bad theology. It's not confirmed in the new covenant. And it's certainly not confirmed in the old covenant that, you know, Israel, you, you know, no one is found righteous, no, not one, but the Gentiles have their way and Israel has theirs. I don't see that scripture, uh, even in the most amplified of amplified versions. So we want to push on dual covenant theology here. And so back to your original kind of first Jewish objection, this idea that somebody says, look, a person's either Jewish or Christian. I'm Jewish, you're Christian. Therefore, in terms of faith, we really have nothing to do with each other. What they're really saying is, they're referring to a religious system, right? The Jewish religious system and the Christian religious system. But I want to contextualize this a bit. Judaism is unique in the world because it's not only a religion or we can say a faith system. It's also an ethnicity, right? It's something that either is passed down literally through DNA, being sons or daughters of Jewish men and women in the Bible, and then since then throughout history, being ethnically Jewish, or people like Ruth, who said, your people shall be my people, who in essence joined themselves in a covenant relationship to the people of Israel, and were actually absorbed into this idea of the household or the commonwealth of Israel. And so Judaism isn't just this religious system, it's an ethnicity. And the idea of the need for a Messiah transcends both. The whole house of Israel, the Jewish people throughout history, have never been, either through Moses, who said, there's one coming after me who's greater than me, listen to him in Deuteronomy 18, 15, or through the prophets who confirmed the need of Israel to have a savior, to have a redeemer. 
And I'm thinking specifically of like Isaiah 53. We'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. But this idea that there would need to be a suffering servant who died for the forgiveness of sins for Israel. Israel throughout history, and by Israel I'm saying the Jewish people wherever we are worldwide, has never been without this idea that we need the shedding of blood, specifically of innocent spotless blood, in order for our sins to be forgiven. We need a sacrifice to be made to be in right standing with God. And so what you're saying as a Christian is, I believe that the sacrifice that that I have faith in, namely Jesus, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, is the one that Moses and the prophets foresaw, the lamb of God that John the Baptist foresaw when he saw Jesus, Yeshua, coming down the slopes of the, the banks of the Jordan River. Uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a messianic proclamation by a Jewish man to Jewish listeners. And so what you're saying as a Christian when you say, I want to talk with you about Jesus, isn't I want to talk with you about the God of my religion. What you're actually saying is I want to talk with you about the Jewish Messiah that Moses and the prophets foresaw who opened the way for me as a Gentile to come into the blessings of the commonwealth of Israel. But those blessings first belong to you. In fact, the promises and the sacrifice and the gospel even uh, of the Messiah, of Jesus, first belonged to the Jewish people. Where did I get that? Romans 1.16. And Jesus himself said, I have not come but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so you can push on the, look, you're Christian, I'm Jewish, and say, no, 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 I'm talking to you about the Jewish Messiah who also made a way for me, a Gentile, to come into right standing with the God of Israel. Right there, that's a mic drop because it's probably a, a fundamentally different conversation than most Jewish people have ever had with a Christian. So really, the, the understanding is that both a Jewish person and a Christian both need a Redeemer. It's not that one is um, Jewish and one is Christian and Jesus is only for the Christians, but really both need a Redeemer. That's the foundation. And in this case, Jesus the Messiah is the Redeemer. Exactly. And even more than that, Carly, it's 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 a different paradigm. And I hope this is eye-opening and a bit refreshing for our audience, whether you're a Christian or a Jewish person who found our podcast and is wondering what's up here, or you are a believer in Jesus with a Jewish heritage. What you're not saying, and this is this is the fundamental kind of paradigm shift, I think, that we're trying to get across. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. When you're sharing Jesus with a Jewish person, you're not standing in a place of Christianity, inviting a Jewish person to convert to another religion and receive your Savior, your God. You're saying, I was far away as a Gentile, and God, through Jesus, the God of Israel, brought me near through the blood of the Lamb, the Messiah of Israel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one promised to your people first. I'm so thankful God's brought me into your family, and I hope you know your own Messiah. In essence, I've been invited into your family, Jewish friend or extended family member, and I want to give you a testimony about that. Again, completely different conversation, different, different foundation, different paradigm than saying, I want to share how you can become a member of my religion. That, that's great context. So let's move to um, the second objection. I'm role-playing the Jewish person here. I get it, Ezra. You know, you're saying, I need a Redeemer. I need a Messiah. If Jesus is the Messiah, why is there not peace on earth? You know, okay, if he came, the earth and the world that we live in sure seems pretty messed up. Right. And you're hitting on, in a way, why the first century, um, I'll say the leaders in the first century Jewish community, by and large, with some exceptions, rejected the Messiahship of Jesus. 
during his lifetime and even after his resurrection resisted the reality that he had resurrected from the dead, which was undeniable and confirmed by hundreds of witnesses, maybe even thousands over the 40 days he walked around in a resurrected body before going to be with the father. But the question you're asking is the same question that those Jewish leaders were asking under Roman oppression, suffering from taxation, abusive, violent Roman army and regime living there, kind of exerting their authority, sending uh, governors from the headquarters in Rome to sort of lord it over the Jewish people in the first century. And their belief was when the Messiah comes, in essence, this idea of the Messiah, son of David, right? The Messiah, son of the conquering King David and the line of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, not unscriptural, not in, in opposition to what the prophets had foresaw in part. When the Messiah comes, he'll deliver us from the oppression we've been under when we've been ruled by the nations. And so when Jesus shows up and starts doing the works that a Messiah would do and saying the things that a Messiah would say about forgiveness and authority with God and right standing with the Father uh, and confirming what he was saying with signs and wonders, the expectation was, okay, if you're the Messiah, deliver us from oppression, deliver us from political governmental oppression and just like even after his his uh, resurrection, what the disciples asked him before he ascended on the Mount of Olives, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to Israel, right? Because the idea was messianic expectation was one that Israel would be the head of nations the way God always promised that we would be, and the Messiah would bring in that era. And yet, Jesus is humble of heart and lowly and taking the form of a servant and even making himself obedient to death on a Roman cross. And so it doesn't compute if, if, if the entirety of your messianic expectation is Yeshua ben David, Jesus, son of David, the conquering king who restores the kingdom to Israel. But what was important for, for the Jewish leaders at that time to remember, and what's important for the Jewish community, Carly, today to remember in response to the objection you raised is that we don't only see the Messiah, son of David in the scriptures. We see the Messiah, what's called Messiah ben Yosef or Messiah, son of Joseph, that the prophets also saw a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is a great example, right? Who's believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? because he'll grow up before God the Father as a tender shoot and as a root out of a dry ground. When we see him, he has no form or beauty that we should desire him. In fact, we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God, smitten and afflicted, in essence, forsaken of the Father. But he's the one who would be wounded for our transgressions and pierced and bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, brought us shalom with God, would be laid upon him. And so the issue of why is there no peace on earth we believe, according to the scriptures, just like the Old Testament Jewish prophets believed, that there is a day coming when the Messiah will rule and reign from Jerusalem and crush his enemies under his feet and restore the governmental headship and authority to the land of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, because the Messiah himself will be ruling and reigning there. But what many in Israel, and even today, many Jewish people don't understand is that the first peace that the Messiah had to bring was the punishment that brought us peace, according to Isaiah 53, the peace that begins in the human heart. Because you can have the absence of war and you can have economic prosperity and you can have opportunity and equality and unity on earth, but if we don't have peace in our hearts, we experience no peace. And so Jesus came the first time 
as the suffering servant, the Messiah, son of Joseph, to suffer and die for the sins of Israel, to redeem the lost sheep of of the house of Israel, and all from the nations, from the Gentiles who would call upon his name to be invited into his family through forgiveness, through the shedding of his own innocent blood. Why? To establish the kingdom of his peace within our hearts, which is really where it begins. He'll come again to establish peace on earth. And as his kingdom expands through, we can say, the ecclesia, the body of believers, Jew and Gentile worldwide, we do see the expansion of all those things we'd hoped for, justice and righteousness and equality and unity across racial and ethnic divides and across economic barriers. And we see the expansion of peace, but worldwide, no, not yet, because this world is still under the control of the evil one, not under the control of the ruling and reigning Messiah. And that's part of why we pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's the context there. And it's, you know, you hear that so often. I can't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, why? Because if he is, where's the peace? How could the Holocaust happen? How can bad things continue to happen? Because we've experienced the, the, the Messiah, the son, the, the suffering servant, who made a way for us to have peace in human hearts. And we have yet to experience the Messiah in the line of David, the reigning lion of the tribe of Judah, who will bring peace on earth. And we're in this awkward, difficult middle period, which is part of why I think Paul says, Carly, that it requires the blinders to come off and that even faith in Jesus isn't from ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no man can boast because it requires faith to believe that he is the one who in the past on the cross brought us peace and who will bring peace to earth that we haven't experienced yet. Right. So there's there's sin in this world, so there's not going to be peace. And like you said, when Jesus comes back, that's when we're expecting for the peace. And the Bible even says we're we're not of this world. This is not the world we were made for. We're made for a different world. So Jesus will be bringing peace. He just hasn't yet. So I want to talk about Isaiah 53 because you you brought that up in what you were just referencing, one objection that a Jewish person might say, okay, yeah, Isaiah 53, yeah, I get it. But but Ezra, that's not about Jesus. All of that context is about Israel. Right. And you just stated the objection very well. And that's, in a, in a way, I'm going to say it's a convenient out. I know I'm being a little bit bold here, but it's a convenient out in the portion of the Jewish community, which is dedicating so much of its time and energy to you can call anti-missionary efforts or basically the systematic refuting of the claims of the Messiahship of Jesus, uh, convincing the Jewish community that this is just not true. And the convenient out is this. Yes, even in the most ultra-Orthodox religious Jewish communities, you hold the word of God in very high esteem, but anytime something doesn't make sense, you allegorize it and you make it a parable about Israel. Now, I'm of the belief, and I hope our audience, you know, I, people are going to fall on all, all uh, sections of the spectrum here, but where I'm at in terms of interpreting the word of God, Carly, Old Testament and New Testament alike, is read literal things literally unless we have a specific indicated reason not to do so. And the idea of he shall grow up before him as a tender shoot and as a root out of a dry ground, that he has no former beauty that we should desire him. This is singular language talking about someone who can be seen. Now, there's other times where we see Israel, even Jerusalem referred to as in a feminine way, she, right? Her walls, her palaces. 
uh, or Israel referred to as my son and given kind of this masculine, masculine or in some cases even a feminine identity. But when the prophets do that, they're doing it very clearly and you understand. It says Israel or Israel my son or daughter of Jerusalem and you understand what's happening here. Isaiah 53 doesn't do that. The idea he was pierced, wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities Nowhere else in the scriptures is there the idea that somehow Israel's punishment can bring about her forgiveness. Israel's punishment, being scattered among the nations, being subjected to sieges from armies in Old Testament times, the destruction of the temple, this doesn't somehow satisfy the wrath of God so that he says, okay, now you've done enough, you're forgiven. It's the consequence we rightly deserved. And he says, but for my mercy and my faithfulness sake, you're not consumed. I'm going to preserve a remnant. Not because somehow you were punished enough to earn forgiveness, right? In essence, you, you've, been, you've been spanked 99 times. Now it's as though you never, you never stole the cookie from the cookie jar. Uh, it's maybe a poor example in terms of minimizing some significant sin throughout the history of the Jewish people. But Israel's suffering doesn't earn her forgiveness. Israel's suffering humbles her to recognize our need for the Lord to intervene with redemption and salvation. So Ezra, one thing you keep saying is her when you're referring to Israel. And in Isaiah 53, it's all he. Right. So I think that's also interesting is Israel is often referred to as she, her, etc. But Isaiah 53 is all about an individual who is a he. Right. And that's, yeah, that, and again, we, we, Typically, or I can say often maybe is the more accurate way to say it, Israel, Jerusalem, I referred to as she, but somebody who's objecting to our objection to their objection might say, well, Israel's referred to as a he too. True, but this is a singular he. And for example, towards the end of the chapter, he made his grave with the wicked in his death. Well, I, I don't remember a time when the entirety of the nation of Israel died. And I don't see that prophesied for the future. Now our people are largely in large number and to a significant degree, like in the Holocaust, cut down, reduced in number. There's been annihilation attempts throughout history. And I think the scriptures, unfortunately, make it clear that similar days are ahead before before Yeshua returns for the Jewish people. I'm sorry to say, but it's in the Bible. We can't deny it. But this idea of Israel, in essence, dying and going to the grave, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't see that anywhere else. And so this, this convenient out of anything in, in the prophets and the Torah that maybe points to the idea of a Messiah we make into Israel as the victim, as the suffering servant, I'm going to say is some convenient but shoddy, shoddy hermeneutics. And I know I just you know made a giant statement many rabbis might object, but... I would say, prove to me how you know this isn't literally referring to a man who would literally suffer and die and go to the grave. And if they can, maybe I'll be convinced differently, but nobody to date has done that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So I'm going to bring up an objection that I think is one of the biggest ones. And we actually have a podcast coming up where we talk specifically about this. But one of the most important prayers in the Jewish tradition is in Deuteronomy 6, which is the Shema, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the objection is, you know, you Christians, you believe in three gods or the Trinity. We Jews, we believe in one God. So we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, according to Deuteronomy. 
Right. And real quickly, I mean, this is kind of like Christian theology 101, but Christians don't believe in three gods, do they? They believe in the, the, the persons, if you will, of God and the person of the Father and the Son, namely Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but existing in this triunity or trinity in heaven as three persons of one Godhead. I know our, Christ, our Christian audience is going, yeah, 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 I learned that in like third grade Sunday school or seminary. I got you. But I'm saying that for the sake of our Jewish audience, that there aren't three separate deities who are worshiped in Christianity. But that still doesn't resolve the issue of this idea that God is one, right? And the typical Jewish objection is, okay, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all representations of God. Jews believe in one God, not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want to push on that a little bit as well. And the idea there, you know, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, our Jewish audience knows what I just said because you've heard it your whole lives. Our Christian audience thinks I was just praying in tongues or I sneezed. I didn't. That was Hebrew. And the verse there is, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But that word Echad, which literally in Hebrew is the number one, like the numeral one, the root there in another form is beyachad. And where do we see that in the scripture? You know this verse from the Psalms, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, right? Multiple people dwelling together, beyachad, literally in oneness or as one. So even the word echad in Hebrew doesn't exclusively mean one that doesn't have parts dwelling together in unity. So just using the Shema as a Jewish objection to the gospel or this idea, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Therefore, there can be no persons of the Godhead. I don't buy it. Just look at the Hebrew. And then secondly, I just want to point out, and Carly, we have another show on the Trinity, another episode. Super good with our friend Troy Wallace, who is much more of a theologian than I am, but really unpacking this idea of Jewish thought as it relates to the Trinity. And believe it or not, we do see the idea of us or manifestations, appearances in different forms of, of the Godhead as spirit, right? In Genesis 1, the spirit hovered over the waters. And God the Father, I will be a father to Israel. And, you know, Jacob, my son. And then also, believe it or not, even the angel of the Lord appearing next to the burning bush or wrestling with Jacob was most likely a pre-incarnate Jesus. I, some of some of our audience just went, I'm out. This is heresy. Listen to the show on the Trinity. I promise we'll explain what we're saying. But my point here is that the idea that uh, the Jews have one God and the Christians have three, first of all, the Christians don't have three. And second of all, the Jewish concept of one God, which there is, there's no other, right? There's no other name. God is the almighty, but the way that he expresses himself and manifests himself to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament scriptures is in different persons, different expressions, different manifestations, which closely, if not identically, resemble the idea of a father and of a son or of an angel of the Lord and of a Holy Spirit, a spirit of God. And so uh, I'd encourage our audience before just writing off the claims of Jesus over this idea that somehow it's this polytheistic concept that a misinformed rabbi invented in the first century and got a bunch of pagans to follow him and misguided Jews. No, the idea of the expressions of God throughout history being in multiple forms is something that is indeed a very Jewish thought. And I would challenge even the most religious of rabbis, even the most studied of Jewish leaders to object to that idea that God has manifested himself as an angel, as a messenger, as father, as spirit, and 
even, if you will, as son. Yeah, and like Ezra said, we have an episode coming up on the Trinity that would be very insightful if you're interested in more about that. Um, so Ezra, let's go to the the last objection or the fifth objection that we're going to talk about today, which comes from Isaiah 43, 11. So again, this is in the Hebrew scriptures. A Jewish person would you know, know this context, but it says, I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no savior. So the Jewish person would be saying, God alone is my only savior. I don't need Jesus. How would you respond to that? Right. Well, here we get into the concept of the deity of Yeshua, the deity of Jesus, right? Which dovetails nicely with the topic we were just talking about, the idea of one God versus three. No, the three persons of God in Christian thought are all deity, right? They're all part of the Godhead. And in Jewish thought here, the idea is, well, Isaiah says, apart from me, there is no savior. True. But who is me? Right? This is the question. When does God call himself me? Or when God says, I, who's I? And I'm thinking of a couple passages. One, Carly, is John 10, right? This idea of Jesus being the shepherd of the sheep. And then in verse 29 of, of John 10, Jesus is speaking to some of the Jewish leaders who are gathering really to challenge him and, and see if he's for real and challenge his claims. And he says, my father who has given them, namely my sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch those sheep out of my father's hand. And then in John 10, verse 30, I and my father are one. Echad. So again, here's the idea. When God says in Isaiah, apart from me, there is no savior, Jesus says a couple things like this throughout his three and a half years of ministry on earth. And look at what it says in verse 31 of John 10. Then the Jews, or really the Jewish leaders in that area, took up stones again to stone him. Well, why? Because they were angry? No, because in saying, I and the Father are one, Jesus just equated himself with God. In essence, he proclaimed himself to be inseparable from God and therefore deity. What on earth? And if and two things had to happen there, right? You can't just say, like is so popular, even in the Jewish world, oh, well, Jesus was a good rabbi. He was just misinformed. He was misguided. He was a good teacher. No, he was either a heretic who blasphemed the name of God by de declaring himself to be one with the Father, or he was everything he said he was. And when he got up out of that grave, he confirmed the reality that he was and is and always will be forever everything he says he was. So that's one example of this idea of me, and apart from me, there is no Savior in the Scriptures. And another example I want to give Carly is not from the New Testament, in case our audience you know, feels like they can't bring New Testament Scriptures as proof text to Jewish people they're speaking with, kind of debating the claims of, of Jesus or who are rebutting them. This comes to us from our very own Isaiah, the prophet in uh, the Jewish scriptures or what the Christians know as the Old Testament. And listen to this. this you, you know this passage, but the context here is Isaiah emits this very gloomy assignment of prophesying that because of Israel's sin and disobedience, the 10 northern tribes of Israel are going to be carried away under the Assyrian Empire and scattered among the nations for this undefined period of time, taken out of Jerusalem, taken out of northern Israel by siege. And yet there's this streak of light and hope on a very dark and gloomy canvas. And it says this in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Listen to the verse. For unto us a child is born. And our audience is going, yeah, 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 I know this. It's Handel's Messiah. But listen, this is actually Isaiah. 
For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name, whose name? The child, the son, listen, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, in the Christian world, who's the counselor and the comforter? It's the Holy Spirit, right? Who's the son? It's Jesus. Unto us a son is born, a son is given, or a child is born, a son is given, but his name shall be called. The son's name shall be called Everlasting Father. And so right here, hundreds of years before Jesus walks on earth in in a human body, right? Born of Mary, we see this picture that one is coming who will at one time be manifesting the Holy Spirit and the Father, God the Father, and the Son, the child who's who's born unto Israel. And so Old Testament and New Testament alike, this idea that, you know, God's saying, I am your Savior. There's no other apart from me. I know not one. Who is I and me? Again, it's this idea of the personhood, the nature of God, which is not easily explained. That's why we have a whole show on the Trinity and the Jewish context of it, not just the Christian context. But I'm not trying to simplify or explain away a very complex concept, Carly. What I'm trying to do is push on this idea of this false dichotomy that Christianity is polytheism and Judaism is monotheism. And there's only God the Father in Judaism, and there's only these three separate persons of God or three separate gods in Christianity, and never the two shall meet. Because we see in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, expressions of the, if you will, the triunity of of the Godhead. Yeah, so the Trinity is obviously a very important concept to understand, which can be simple or complex depending how much you look into it. But understanding that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit plays into a lot of this. Um, So it's a good thing to understand if you are interested in apologetics and will be explaining your faith to Jewish people or just others who are not believers. So... Thanks for thanks for explaining those. There's many other objections, Ezra, that we could get into from historical to messianic to theological objections. For those listening, if there's something specific that you've always wondered or that you've heard before, send that in. We can talk about it in an upcoming podcast or answer the question that you might have specifically, and we're happy to do that. And one kind of parting thought from me, Carly, for our audience, don't let these objections or any other objections or smoke screens or offense or whatever it is, shut you down. If you're from, if you have a Christian background and you just really have a desire or a burden to share your faith with a Jewish person, friend, extended family member, coworker, and you hear one of these, don't let that be the end of the conversation. If you need to say, you know, that's a really good question. I'm going to think about that and look into it because I want to have a good answer for you. Press pause, but don't press eject because the conversation should continue. And, uh, yeah, Carly, if, if our audience has has objections to Jesus that they've heard from a Jewish person or anywhere else, that they go, I really have no idea how to answer that, especially as it relates to the Jewish faith, we'd love to hear those things. But don't give up. You're doing a good thing in sharing the most important message of Jesus, your Messiah and ours, uh, with Jewish friends and family. They need the message as much as any of us do. And uh, thanks for your boldness and courage in sharing. Yep. Great encouragement. For those listening, thanks again for listening. Uh, We've talked about this before, but if you want to continue supporting this podcast and the content that we're putting out, please do so. You can get all the details at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. We even have the opportunity to receive 
a bag of Lost Tribes coffee that we source directly from Ethiopia in one of the areas that we share the gospel with Jewish people. You can learn more about that on our website. We're also offering a free bag of that coffee right now in a monthly contest. So if you want to enter to win, you can text JG to 474747. If you want more content just like this episode, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you leave us a review, share this podcast with someone you think may be interested. If there's anything you want to have us discuss, you can submit that on the website or engage with us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. Thanks again for listening to another episode and join us next week. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.